welcome to the City Club of Cleveland at Happy Dog. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming at the City Club, and today we are taking on Project Noir. We have amazing ladies here on the panel. In early 2020, Cleveland was ranked last as a livable city for black women. In response, the co-founders of Enlightened Solutions here with us today sought to listen to the voices of black women in Cleveland. They received 450 survey responses and through data analysis confirmed what many black women have felt for generations in the workplace, in healthcare, and in education. Cleveland is failing black women. In a city and a county that just last summer declared racism a public health crisis, these findings have reignited a long-standing conversation about systemic racism and structural barriers black women face in the city. So what is it like living, working, and learning in the worst city in America for black women? And what can we do better to support them in our workplaces, in school, and in our communities? Here to discuss this is Chichi Nicamara. Nicamara. In camera, I had it earlier. You're fine. Uh, Director of Strategy and co-founder of Enlightened Solutions, and Bethany Studenik, Managing Director and co-founder of Enlightened Solutions, as well as Stephanie Sheely, Manager of Strategic Initiatives of YWCA of Greater Cleveland, and they were actually a stakeholder and partner in this report. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us today. A reminder, if you have questions for our panelists, you can use the, uh, the microphone here. If you're a little camera shy, you can text 330-541-5794, and you can also tweet them at the City Club, and I'll try to work them in up here. So everyone, welcome to the Happy Dog. And first off, my question is, you know, I, I had a couple of stats up here. We had that one report that came out that said that Cleveland was the worst city for black women. Um, Cleveland is consistently hitting the worst of all of these rankings. We've seen so many listicles, uh, rankings. That we, I think we we're the worst city for sports, worst city for weather, worst yep. city for segregation. Um, I mean, it goes on and on, and all the lists that we do not want to be on the top of. Uh, why this Bloomberg report that came out? What, what had spurred you guys to action? Um, I think, first and foremost, uh, I'd like to thank the black women that took the survey, the 450 black women that um, trusted us with their uh, experiences, their lives, um, and I really want to, again, give honor and space to them first, um, and then also black women here in the room and uh, black women across uh, the city of Cleveland. Uh, moving forward to the uh, methodology and why we uh, decided to uh, move forward with this survey, uh, when we saw the City Lab article in 2020 in Bloomberg, uh, Bethany and I at that point were essentially looking for a project. We wanted to be able to sink our teeth into something um, that was really tangible and measurable and didn't uh, start with forums, did not start with the idea of just speaking about a problem and leaving it on the table when you left the event. Uh, so looking at the article and, and the brilliant way that Dr. Junia Howell out of the University of Pittsburgh uh, created the survey, it was really easy to scale this survey up and make sure that uh, the black women that we would be interviewing would be able to um, have their experiences heard in a way that typically is uh, not represented in the media. I think the most shocking thing, and I'll leave it here, um, that we realized when reading the article was that no black women were interviewed in the process at all. 
Um, that's shocking. So that means no black women were interviewed in the greatest cities, in Charlotte, in D.C., um, and no black women in the uh, Rust Be Belt Midwest were interviewed at all. And we kind of thought that is shocking and unacceptable. Do you want to add anything on that? I, I wanted to add uh, to the idea that no one had talked to black women directly. You know, we had been talking to a lot of organizations who were saying that they wanted to do something more around these issues, but they were struggling to understand how they could take the next steps. Uh, and part of what we wanted to do was knowing that Cleveland was on the bottom of this ranking, we know that the uh, segregation, the issues here are entirely pronounced. And that provides an opportunity for a data analyst and people who want to support this work to understand um, what the real texture is of marginalization, how it has evolved, how it, how it has changed since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Marginalization has changed a lot, and the way that it uh, functions inside of systems has changed a lot as well. So we wanted to provide the opportunity for black women in our community who are experiencing some of the most severe um, harassment and abuse across our systems. We wanted to provide them a voice, and we wanted to use data principles in service of them. So in your report, you talked a little bit about the methodology. This is something that I've never seen before, and I worked in policy and like data with a bunch of wonks, and this was something I had not seen before. You called it uh, phenomenological research? Yes, yeah. phenomenological research. Ph yeah, phenomenological research. Can you explain exactly what that is and why you chose to go that route? Yeah, so phenomenological research is really based on understanding the lived experiences of individuals. We know that it's hard to understand a perspective that we haven't experienced. So understanding that people walk through life, uh, experiencing the world in different ways based on the intersections that they inhabit, right? Uh, for us, with phenomenological research, what we wanted to do was uh, make it digestible and understandable what black women are going through in our community. Phenomenological research uh, provides, uh, uh, it provides its own internal validity uh, because the stories reinforce one another. Whenever we see that um, black women have shared with us 50, 100, 200 times that they've experienced one specific occurrence, we can start labeling those actions in a way that we weren't able to do before. So you look at our report and you see something like steering. That's a term that we had to coin because the microaggression that we were trying to communicate to the world had not been labeled. And so part of what we're doing here is building language uh, so that people can actually talk about and communicate what they have been through while at the same time providing them tools and strategies for mitigating the problems that they're facing. Is that any different from a lot of folks who work in, in statistics? You hear a lot about quantitative data versus qualitative data. Is, is that running into the qualitative data or is it completely different? Thank you for that question. Such a good question. Um, this is much more qualitative. Um, a lot of data is quantitative these days. So you see those percentages, you th see things that are kind of easy to run. I think a lot of times people are looking for cut and dry solutions. I want a yes or a no. I want to know 50% or 60%. Uh, what we are trying to do is understand experiences. It is not as simple as looking at a percentage. And so what we did was we did the hard work of digging into every single story. We had almost a thousand vignettes of harassment and abuse across systems. And we went through and hand-coded every single one of those. We also used artificial intelligence and a couple other tools to make sure that we were um, uh, keeping our objectivity uh, in, in focus. Uh, but at the same time, what we were doing was pretty labor-intensive, right? The larger that study is, the more labor-intensive it's going to be. But that's why the data is informative. We took the time and we asked the questions. 
Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, just a little bit of a wonky uh, question is stuck in there. Um, so Stephanie, I wanted to get over to you. I know the YWCA has had a big role in um, being a stakeholder in this report, and maybe if you want to talk a little bit about um, their involvement as well as what this means for the women that you work with uh, over at the YWCA. Sure. So um, when the Bloomberg City Lab report came out in early 2020, January, we were immediately contacted by media outlets um, coming to us and saying, well, what should we do about this? What does this mean? How do you guys feel about this? And what, how can we solve this? Um, one of the quick answers that we gave was, this is not our problem as the YWCA. We have been in this work and doing this work for years here in Cleveland, over 150. And um, we didn't necessarily create this problem. So to ask us what to do about it, maybe you're asking the wrong people, I think was the <laughs> answer. Um, we have <laughs> systems here in Cleveland. We have um, a city government, all kinds of organizations, companies that have perpetuated and created this ecosystem that has made Cleveland the worst place for black women to live. So it's important for us to, to make sure that those people, those organizations are being contacted and reaching out to and saying, for them to say, what should we be doing to make this better? Especially those, I mean, obviously it's, sorry. No, uh, don't <laughs> apologize. It's obviously, Cleveland wants to be better, I think. I think that's a part of the large narrative that we just saw in our mayoral race and all of the organizations that do have some of those, um, talk about those rankings all the time that highlight the good ones and sometimes minimize the bad ones. So if we want to be better, this is one of those things that we should all be looking at. So that's why it's really important for us to get involved at the YWCA. Yeah, and I, I, to follow up on that too, and I know this came up a little bit in our, our prior conversations, of how, when this report came out that, that the two of you released, um, it, it confirmed what many black women already knew. And I know in our native community, we also had some more recent qualitative data type reports that came out, and it was just a huge sigh of relief to be able to um, understand that what you're feeling is true and real, and, and also sadly that other women also feel that. Um, can you maybe draw on a little bit of that about the importance of listening to black women and the importance of being able to quantify that data? I think the most important thing that we were able to um, amplify within Project Noir was actually getting the stories of black women on, um, on video and on audio. Uh, we were able to capture those vignettes with private interviews, um, and then we re-recorded those interviews using voice actors. Uh, so you can hear the actual stories of black women here living, working, attempting to thrive in Cleveland um, on the Project Noir podcast. It's really important to hear from the words of these women um, about their experiences. One of the most shocking ones that I heard, um, and if you don't mind, I can just briefly tell about talk about it, was a black woman who is a C-suite professional here, um, was working in a job where her boss negotiated her salary. However, he negotiated her salary $30,000 less than her white counterpart in Michigan, and she knew about it. Now, what kind of morale would you have working in a job knowing that somebody that is your direct counterpart is making $30,000 less? The importance of Project Noir illustrates that that's $30,000 less that black women in Northeast Ohio, Ohio are utilizing to pay their student loans, mm -hmm. to buy groceries, to pay their mortgage, to pick up their kids at daycare. It is tangible and it is measurable. And the importance of having a project like this out there in the public is that people cannot ignore this problem anymore. 
black women have been speaking about it in our group chats, in our private professional groups, in our networking groups, and it is time for the organizations, for the people of influence, for the individuals that have the financial resources, the financial resources, <laughs> to be putting their money behind and amplifying and helping to ameliorate these issues that are really systemic within our society. Let's, so perfect segue. I wanna really take kind of a high level and also a little bit of a deep dive into your findings of the report. Um, I know you have some copies of the report laying around. Yes. If, if you have not read it, 10 out of 10 recommend. It's a very amazing read. Um, great graphics, uh, A+. Plus. Okay. So uh, I would love to know, um, you broke it down in three sections. Do you want to uh, describe maybe what those three sections are? And um, maybe we'll start with uh, in the workplace. Sure, we can start out there. So uh, in workplaces, um, we found that uh, harassment and discrimination have really changed over time. So like I mentioned before, we look at most of our protections from the purview of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and some of the law that comes after that. But what Chi-Chi and I often say is that racism, harassment, discrimination, sexism, these things are like living organisms that adapt to the environments that they live in. And so as soon as you find a way to mitigate what's happening, it will adapt and it will change and it will become harder to put your thumb on, right? So we work really hard to try to be predictive um, and try to get ahead of how we think things are headed, right? In workplaces, what we really found is, you know, I think a lot of times people think about pay discrepancies, you know, and we mentioned one of those, and that's something that we should be talking about, and it's measurable. But another piece that we really need to be thinking about is microaggressions and interpersonal conflict, right? The, the major complaint that we got across systems is that interpersonally, people are committing microaggressions at an alarming and astounding rate. And they are making people feel as if they don't belong in systems. And they frankly, when we get to healthcare, they're leading to death, right? They're, they're killing people. Um, so what I want people to understand is that workplaces, harassment and discrimination is much more than slurs now, right? It is uh, your new manager comes in and meets with everybody on the team except the black woman, right? It is uh, your manager gives resources to certain members on your team and withholds resources from others. It is uh, uh, informal benefits. It is flex time. It is access to mentorship. It is access to encouragement. Um, we see a lot of harsher standards for black women. So we'll see that uh, black women are often held to standards that others are not held to. And when they are, uh, when they are seen to uh, infract upon uh, those pieces, they're punished very harshly, right? We see organizations that have high turnover rates, much higher turnover rates for black women. They're exiting, from, exiting them from organizations while at the same time saying we're an anti-racist organization, right? So I want, what I want you to understand and walk away from this is racism, sexism, ableism, all these isms that we have and we're dealing with, they change. And we need to continue to update our literacy, especially intersectionally. So I'm a white woman. I need to be literate in understanding how Latin women are being treated, how black women are being treated, how neurodivergent women are being treated. Uh, we need to be a lot more literate so that we can all start to protect each other and come around. And what we found in workplaces is this is one of the serious issues. We think systems operate, uh, I think, independently when we say systemic racism or systemic sexism. But people make choices every single day. We uphold policies, we make data decisions, we make decisions at the executive level, and we continually reinforce this every single day. Yeah, and Stephanie, I know at the YWCA, you work really extensively with a lot of uh, young professional and like, you know, C, yeah. B-level, A-level suite women. 
um, in workforce training and job training and career training. What are you seeing there and is this reflected of what the ladies you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of what Bethany talked about happening, the microaggressions happening as far as compensation, also a lot of encouragement for things like professional development and programs that we offer as, at the YWCA. We saw over the years for our uh, specific Women's Leadership Institute, black women weren't being nominated to participate in these programs that their companies were paying for. So as much as we thought we were marketing to black women, we thought, and women of color in general, we thought that we were inviting them into these spaces for this professional development. The fact that the bosses and supervisors and um, leadership were placing the people in the, in the programs we weren't having that many black women or women of color in them. So that was something that we really wanted to hone in on and change in our new strategic um, plan for 2020. And with that, we really decided and thought deeply about the fact that women do not need to be fixed necessarily. We don't, maybe we don't need to spend as much time in professional development and showing us how to climb that corporate ladder and go all that whole route about how to be better to fit into corporate America and corporate society. Maybe the problem is that these organizations, corporations, are not fit to engage with, understand, listen to, hear, and believe black women. So with that, we've taken a really different shift with our um, women's empowerment programming and are really focused on personal growth rather than professional development because we know that when women are get to network with one another, talk about their experiences and their problems, and also get to work on the things that are bothering them or challenges or struggles for them internally and personally, they're going to be better uh, employees, they're going to be better mothers, they're going to be better friends and citizens here. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the things that came up in the report too is a lot of women feeling that they had to conform to non-black standards um, the second they got on the job, whether it's through actual policy of handbooks, right, where we police black women's hair and bodies, um, down to, you know, really micro things like you had mentioned. and. Um, I think that's something that is really understated about yeah. what's going on, if you wanted to chime it, in there. It's exceptionally frustrating um, to understand that our workplaces have a really narrow version of what professionalism is. Um, our workplaces, to be very frank, are leaving money on the table when they are not expanding their ideas on what professionalism is. It is misogynistic. It is massage noir, as in the, exp the explicit intersection of race and gender that affects black women. Um, and to be quite frank, like I said before, our workplaces, Cleveland does not have the luxury of being an exceptionally wealthy city. We should be doing everything to be placing black women at the helm of these organizations to expand our ideas of what creative, integrative, um, in integrative also, <laughs> innovative, um, progressive workplaces should look like. And that includes something as simple as hair. Why are you bothered by the texture of my hair? Are you jealous? The issue is not that the, the individual is, um, like I said, not responsible or not educated. You just have an idea that is incorrect and it needs to be fixed and it needs to be called out so that we can move forward with the business at hand, which is making Cleveland a more progressive um, and inclusive city. Yeah, and one of the things you pointed out in your report just really quickly too is 
um, how you know you would have to conform to the what is considered normal and professional. But then at the same time, come February, suddenly you have to shoulder the burden burden of all the DEI work and outreach for the black community. <laughs> Let me tell you, please do not start asking your black coworkers, your church members whoever, whatever professional organizations you are in, please do not start knocking on their door on January 17th to start planning your Black History Month programming. It's insulting. And to be quite honest, we kind of laugh about it because black people are black 365 days of the year and black history is American history. So if you're actually interested in it, it needs to be integrated and woven into the fabric of whatever we are doing, uh, whether it's economics, diversity, accounting, street paving, it literally does does not matter. Blackness is black 365 days of the year. Mm. So want to get into health. This is a really big chapter you have in your report here, health. I uh, want to give some high level findings on that. Sure. So the major themes that we identified there um, were pretty jarring. When Chi Chi and I went into this research, I think we were both pretty, we had kind of a, a feeling that workplaces were going to be the area where we saw a lot of the conflict, right? We think about economics and how that runs so much of our lives. Um, we were a little surprised to see, not entirely surprised, but, enti but a little surprised to see how important and how, uh, how much women wanted to talk about their healthcare experiences. And uh, when you get into it, right, we understand that these are life and death experiences. Um, we have some really serious healthcare problems here in Cleveland. We are marketing ourselves as a healthcare hub, but we are home to the most selfish healthcare system in America. That's the award that the Cleveland Clinic was given recently for their lack of investment in the community that surrounds them. For every white baby that lives in Cuyahoga County to their first birthday, seven black babies do not, right? I want you to understand there's an emergency occurring, and a lot of times the frustration that Chi Chi and I have is we sit down with executives and there is no sense of emergency whatsoever, right? This has been going on so long that I think people are desensitized to it to a certain degree. But what I want you to understand is that the women who are going through this, they're living this and they're losing their lives, and they're losing the lives of their children. Our community is scarred, um, and there's a lot happening. When we look at the particular texture of what this looks like, there's three major uh, buckets that we put it in. Dereliction of care, women's health is more than sexual health, and improper pain management. Dereliction of care talks a little bit about uh, doctors frankly just not listening or believing black women. Black women come in, communicate about their symptoms, tell a doctor what's happening, and the doctor says, I don't think that's true, bye, right? got a lot of stories like that you know there's a lot of excuses a lot of times it's blamed on weight or diet or stress right no diagnostics being run right no efforts to really listen to people and what we see is people are losing their lives we had one particular woman it's a very jarring story um, and this is part of the hyper focus on sexual health as well because what doctors often do is a woman comes in and complains and they automatically assume it has something to do with reproduction um, when and of, oftentimes it's things like appendicitis or a gallbladder disorder, right? Um, so what we saw was one woman in particular had gone to a, uh, a healthcare institution here, um, and she was in a lot of pain, had a conversation with her doctor. Her doctor wanted to know about her sexual health, um, and she said that she was not sexually active, and he said, I don't believe you. I have to check. And before he would provide any type of care, he checked, right? She had appendicitis. She almost died because it was almost going to burst, right? She's in a lot of pain. 
this is what I want you to understand. Systemic racism, systemic problems still include interpersonal problems, right? And when you're looking at those things and you're in the moment, a lot of people say, well, they weren't doing that because of race, or they didn't believe, they did not believe her because of race, or that doctor is really lovely, you know, he, he really supports women. Okay, but we're still seeing this systemically, thousands of times, hundreds of times, right? I want you to understand how serious this is, and I want you to feel like it's an emergency because it is. So, Stephanie, um, I know that, you know, the, the dereliction of care, the over-sexualization of bodies, and just the straight-up not listening to women. Um, I know that the YWCA has been pretty good and active about, you know, women's health as well as getting in there specifically around the COVID-19 pandemic. How is this type of stuff impacting your community when it comes to trust with the health system right now? Um, I think we see this a lot in our women's shelter that we operate, Norma Her Women's Center, um, where you have women who, who are in between homes, you know, experiencing houselessness in a way, and are really working and actively trying to move to the next step. And those next steps can be different for everybody. For some, it's like completing an education or getting, you know, um, proper employment, but for most, obviously, it is finding stabilization in their housing. So that was something that we really, um, that was difficult for us during the pandemic, was just work, getting the proper care to those women in shelter or experiencing houselessness who weren't able to, obviously, they don't have as great access, might not have been top priority for all the organizations. Eventually, luckily, we were able to get COVID testing to our shelter um, pretty frequently, which was really important. But also, they're living really close together, so they need additional care. And so um, not being top priority or really having to advocate for this women, those women is something that we really had to do at the YWCA during the pandemic and still have to do every, I mean, all the time now also having more space luckily we were able to expand our women's center to a second site over on the west side um, during that time and had that opportunity because they it was so problematic being that close during the pandemic yeah and I want to get back to you too for our next topic as well education this was a really good one um, that we had a deep conversation about and it resonated with me specifically too. If you wanted to give the quick high level uh, findings of education. Sure, um, here in Cleveland, we know that we are um, a city that has really struggled with our public education. And again, Cleveland is no different than a lot of major big cities here in America. We are essentially a microcosm of the United States. Um, the education systems, our public education, you know, um, I'm a former teacher. I'm a former Teacher America educator, so I'm not speaking from a place of not understanding how difficult it is. But the difference um, that we have experienced with our Project Noir participants is that black women are routinely moved and steered into lower paying jobs through their educational pursuits. We had one woman who um, was uh, uh, experienced busing in the 1980s and wanted to be a journalist, but her teacher, didn't believe that she could be a journalist at all. Um, stated that maybe she should be a stenographer, maybe she should be a secretary. This is the 1980s, right? This is not, you know, uh, 1940s where women were not really fully integrated into the workplace. This is a woman that's in her uh, now in her 50s, right now living and working in Cleveland, who has now become a journalist, but is still scarred by that experience. We've had experiences of black women, or we've learned from the experience of black women who have gone to their guidance counselors, right? They've made straight A's and B's in their science classes, and they stated, oh, I want to be a doctor, but their guidance counselor steers them to be an STNA. 
Now there's nothing inherently wrong with being an STNA, but why wouldn't you as a guidance counselor look at a child, a, a 16, 17 year old young girl, a black woman, young woman, and steer her into the loving arms of, of the medical profession? We have three major healthcare institutions here within our, uh, within our city. Why are we not pipelining our brilliant black students into these healthcare systems? We could essentially create um, a hub for black nurses and nurse practitioners. It has not been imagined yet because people can't conceptualize that they're walking through the halls of CMSD right now. Yeah, so, and I, I really wanna kinda underline the, the type of, a Someone's <laughs> clapping over there. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I really want to underline, too, a portion of your uh, report under education about essentially the erasure of Ooh. black women from the professional sector, specifically around STEM. Anything uh, being steered into, I think you said 56% uh, of black women felt they were steered into lower level jobs. Yes. And you had mentioned earlier, like, that is economic development, that is economic growth on yes. the table yes. for a for a city that is predominantly we're black. We're making ourselves poorer. Yeah. Like, I, I'm no longer arguing about the morality of like racism with individuals outside of my social circle. We are making ourselves poorer in this city by not imagining, not imagining a more expansive society. Um, within education, if you're steering individuals into these lower paying professions, you're breaking not only their spirits, but you're breaking their bank accounts. And then by, um, by and large, we're going to end up having a healthcare crisis, an education crisis, a skill workers crisis because where are the pipelines? Mm -hmm. Bethany and I are constantly asked by organizations, build us a pipeline. We refuse. <laughs> um, you are not inclusive. How am I going to tell you that I'm going to bring in Latin, Asian, black women into your halls when I know that within 18 months they're going to be cycled out because you're going to microaggress them out of their education or you're going to microaggress them out of, uh, out of the workplace. It's not healthy and we refuse to do it. Now the question is, who are the individuals that are going to be helping hands? Who are the individuals that are going to cede control of the microphone and give it to the black women that know how to solve their own problems. There's an Igbo proverb on Nigerian American that I love using and it really guides my life, which is those that live in the attic know where the roof leaks. We know how to solve these problems. So why are we not empowering individuals to do it? Mm. So Stephanie, I, w I know you had, uh, the YDBC specifically had a pretty good role as a stakeholder, but also, I mean, you had 450 women take this survey and I know you had mentioned you were one of them and you were okay and open to telling a little bit about your experience being surveyed. Um, and what did that mean to you and uh, what specifically, how did that feel in terms of not being, you know, being able to have your voice heard and not being erased? Sure. Um, so yes, I participated in the survey and this is actually before I started working with Bethany and Chi Chi. Um, through Alliance Solutions on projects from the yeah. survey that they did. This was just the beginning of it and it was coming around on my social circles and in social media. So I was like, let me go ahead and do this. It was, I will say an experience and I think I can speak for most of the black women who took that survey, especially if you got a chance to speak with them um, via Zoom and have the live recording taped. It was an literal experience when I never met these two ladies before and I cried for like, we cried a lot, 20 <laughs> minutes yeah. because it's so hard to be able to not name the trauma or experiences that you've 
you know you you know they're happening, but you're like, oh no, it's not because I'm a black woman. It, no, it's something else that didn't happen because of that reason. And so to not to be able to speak with two women who were really doing the work to help you name it, to help you. W- to walk through it and to put you in a collective with other women who were experiencing the same thing to know that you're not alone was really um, special. I will say that. I don't even know what the question was. <laughs> did I answer it? <laughs> no, you absolutely did. And I know that also, and this is kind of getting into my next question for you, Stephanie, is the YWCA also had a really huge role in declaring racism a public health crisis in not only you know Cleveland, but also the county. and. I know that there's been a lot of talk about that just a l- yeah. fell a little short. Um, not your work, but the follow-up by elected officials, by the city, by those in positions of power in nonprofits and corporate world. Did you want to talk about maybe like what's missing there? And um, what do you think the leaders in the regions need to do to kind of step up to this? Um, so first, I have to give just a kudos, a shout out to our amazing leader, Margaret Mitchell, who is going on to leave us, unfortunately, here in Cleveland and move on to be the president of YWCA USA, which is just amazing yeah. because she is that amazing. That was really her. She is a pusher and she pushed that. She had been working with the um, local affiliates, uh, the Ohio YWCAs across the state uh, back in 2019 um, to start working on racism as a public health crisis and pushing that in local municipalities through those YWCAs for a while. Finally, we Cleveland declared it a, pu- a public health crisis in June of 2020, really only after COVID-19, and we saw the disparities that occurred there with this pandemic, um, not only in health, a- health access to health care for um, brown people and people of color, but also in the impact of the shutdown, the economic impact that happened because you're discriminated against already um, in your job search and all that. So it's been, while we are very happy and grateful that um, the city and the county have taken some action to declare racism a public health crisis, and and it's it's been a topic, I believe, across the city in some ways. However, we haven't seen as much progress as I think we'd like to see. We are obviously over a year past that declaration. Um, and with it comes um, accountability to the CDC and taking action to eliminate those um, disparities. And I don't think that Cleveland has been, we haven't achieved as much as we would like to at this point. Um, so hopefully I have faith in our new administration that I think that that will happen. And I'm okay with saying that. <laughs> So we're going to start taking questions and turn to you for questions. If you have a question for any of our panelists, please feel free to line up here. Try to keep it a little less congested, maybe three, four people. And um, if you don't want to ask a question here, again, that number is 330-541-5794. If you prefer to text it to me, you can also tweet it at the City Club, and I'll try to work that in. Um, Really quick then, uh, before we – you can feel free to start lining up now. Uh, We have a new mayor and a new council. What is your advice for them? Would you like to take that, Bethany? (laughs) Sure. Sure. I think, you know, our advice is we need to bring people together and we need to solve problems proactively. Um, Chi-Chi and I talk about this a lot. We think Cleveland should be growing. Um, We are a city that is on a freshwater lake during a looming climate crisis. We have accessible housing prices during a housing crisis. Um, we're an extremely accessible place with lovely falls, right? Uh, we're also, you know, looking at the rise of remote work. Gen Z is really kind of deciding where they want to put down roots, along with some millennials as well. 
and a lot of a lot of cities in metropolitan areas are growing, but Cleveland is shrinking. Right, we're losing political representation, and Chichi and I really think it's because uh, we continue to be on the bottom of these lists. When you're looking at a place to put down roots, even a person like me, a white woman. If I look at that and I see Cleveland is the worst place in America for black women, I'm going to think it's probably not a great place for me either, right? Mm -hmm. So what I want people to understand and what I want the administration to prioritize is Cleveland should be thriving. We should be the next Atlanta. We should be the Charlotte. We should be D.C., right? We, have, we are a black majority city, um, and we have so much talent. The next generation coming up behind millennials, Gen Z, they are 48% racially and ethnically diverse. 33% are members of the LGBT community. The future is diverse. The future of patents, the next billion dollar patent, that's gonna come from a diverse mind, most likely, right? Systems that continually refuse to foster diverse talent and make space for diverse talent are going to lose out in the next decade, the next two decades. Um, so what I want people to understand is this, like Chi Chi said, it's a moral issue, but our argument is economic. Um, we are making ourselves poorer every day because we refuse to engage in actual systems change. How many times have we sat here uh, and had conversations at the city club uh, and people talk about wanting to be anti-racist, but we don't see movement, right? We continue to not see movement, and that's the, the point I want to press. We're in a state of emergency. We are on the bottom rung, and we need to try and solve this problem in a real way. We are a microcosm of the problems facing America, and Chi Chi and I think that if we can solve it in Cleveland, we can solve it anywhere. Great. All right, first question. Hi. Okay, um, I organize about the issue of lead poisoning, and um, you know, the, the rates of how the children are impacted, and it's a racially permeated issue as well white people, but I'm going to leave that alone. My question is, um, can I have your guys' contact information seriously? Absolutely. Sure. Of course. Yeah. No, we'll I'm like, I mean, afterwards. for real. Like, afterwards, I no, just... No, dead serious. We'll link. No yeah. worries. Absolutely. Yes, and um, real quick, the reason why I feel the disparity just persists is because of the white people. <laughs> Did you want to you know, talk about... Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's just like... People are too comfortable, you know what I'm saying? I'm from Cleveland, I graduated from Shaker, which is actually a diverse school. And uh, what I came into uh, exposure to often was a lot of pretentious, you know, entitled and comfortable people with the disparity that exists. You know, black people are in poverty screaming and reading books all day. It's, it's the comfortable middle class that kind of does not erupt. I'll leave it there. A word. No You're less. not wrong. A word. A word. So he did, bring oh. he did bring up a good point, though, lead poisoning. Sure. And that is something that a lot of black women, single head of households, usually in these really dilapidated houses that aren't being lead remediated, yeah. you know, what, I what have you heard in their, your project around lead specifically? We haven't heard, um, and 
I shouldn't say we haven't heard. Um, I can't particularly recall uh, an instance where we talked about lead poisoning, but more broadly, we have talked about community development, um, and black women have consistently been at the forefront of community development efforts um, and community revitalization efforts within the city, um, and it just seems as though our city has not recognized um, those efforts, um, those organizing efforts at all, um, and I think that there are a lot of black women that are ready, uh, again, to take that idea, those ideas to the forefront, because again, their families, generations of black individuals have been living in these houses, and we need to be able to be taking care of that housing stock for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. You got another question here? Um, good afternoon. Can you ladies maybe speak to some solutions that you may be able to offer companies, and how for the for Chi-Chi and Bethany, how does your organization, I know there's not a one size fit all, but what are some of the recommendations that you have for companies coming out of your study? Thank you. Yeah, we have way too many ideas. <laughs> we, have um, we have a lot of ideas. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of different directions we want to go in. But the reality is, is that the major point I want to make is a lot of organizations around here have gotten really comfortable with very small investments mm -hmm. uh, in making change around these issues. Um, I can't tell you how many times in the past year Chi Chi and I have been told we're too expensive um, and that we're asking too much, right? And what I want people to understand is I think what's happened in Cleveland is we've gotten really comfortable with let's do a couple trainings, let's read a book or two, right? Uh, and say we've done something and move on from there. But we don't see any systems change. Um, I'm to the point where I'm saying I don't see how you can say you're engaging in systems change when your systems look exactly the same as when you started, right? So I think one of the, okay. if I can jump in, I think our, our main focus um, is that we need partners. We need individuals, organizations that are able to get us within these systems so that we can have labs to be able to change, this, uh, change these outcomes. Um, many times organizations want us to come to them with fully baked ideas with 20 years of research. I'm 33, right? <laughs> Why are you asking me for 20 years of research when I was listening to Britney Spears at that time? We need individuals to be able to be, again, uh, forward thinking and to kind of be vanguards. We've lost that kind of trailblazer spirit in our industries, and we need at least one healthcare system, education system, workplace, to really grab any one of these equity and inclusion researchers. There are tons that are in Cleveland, brilliant minds. If it's not us, third space. If it's not third space, Erica Merritt. If it's not Erica Merritt, Eris Edie is there. I can name multiple individuals that are able to do systems change, but unless you actually integrate them within their, your systems and allow us to go through and create these labs, your metrics are going to stay the same. We're going to continue losing population. We're going to continue losing economic status, and everything is going to remain the same, if not worse. So I'm going to pull a question in really quick from, uh, from Twitter here. In, uh, he says, Malcolm X once said, the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. My question to the panelists, what can black men do to better support black women in Cleveland? And I'm going to send that to Stephanie. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I think actually going off of what Chi Chi just said about the organizations and institutions not taking action when this, this problem comes to their forefront. We've sat in meetings together on Zoom uh, with 
with huge organizations that just don't understand. They don't get it. They don't feel like they understand their place in this problem or what their place in the solution actually is. If you could have an organization that directly is involved in making Cleveland or the region, Northeast Ohio, better, how do you, how are you not involved in making this problem better? That doesn't make any sense. You can't make Cleveland better without making it better for black women. So I hope people remember that. And for black men, support. I mean, you are, in these institutions, right? Some and, and oftentimes in leadership at a higher rate than black women are. So as black men, you should be supporting. You should be br bringing black women and some of the consultants that you mentioned into your organization and and saying that we need to do this right now. And it's coming from me. It's not being afraid of um, the repercussions that may happen to you because I promise you, we are feeling it a lot worse. Thank you I'll so much. Thank you guys so much for being here tonight. And you know, one thing I, oh, a little closer, yep. okay. Um, one thing I also just wanted to thank you for and recognize is the toll that it takes to have to constantly be exposed to this trauma and then also having to go up on a stage and share your own trauma over and over to get white people to wake up. And so I just wanna thank you for that and I hope that we can change that really soon so that you can stop having to relive this trauma over and over. Uh, my question is, uh, I'm kind of new to the area, I just moved here in July, and I work at a um, mental health agency in Lorain County. Oh. And so I was kind of reading through this, super excited and would love to partner with y'all, but um, I saw some references to Cleveland, also some references to Northeast Ohio, um, and so I'm curious, um, you know, what the, you know, connect I'm guessing that whatever's happening here is also probably happening, you know, 30 miles from here, yeah. but do you feel like, uh, if you could speak to you know how you see this as a regional issue um, and a greater Cleveland area issue. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, question. So yeah, we uh, actually have quite a few responses from Cuyahoga County proper, and then also we talk about Northeast Ohio. We actually had to close down the survey a little early because it started getting outside of Ohio. We actually have about 40 or 50 responses from like LA and Hawaii and yeah. Baltimore. So we have a data set there too. Um, I know that there are differences between, um, uh, between the counties, right? I would say that our data set right now isn't large enough to discern that yet. Um, we use an iterative process. We would like to redo Project Noir every year, and when we get bigger, we'd like to redo Project Noir with other intersections. We'd like to do Project Noir for black men, for the LGBT community, for neurodivergent people, right? Um, so what we know is that there are differences, but our data probably isn't rich enough to discern those yet. We would like to do that in the future. But we know there's a, a big difference in access to services, in how services function in um, counties that are more urban and more rural. I'm from a rural area, um, and I often talk about how uh, social work in particular and the social sciences have hyper-focused um, on issues that are urban, but we forget that there are diverse people who need protection are not living inside city centers and yep. who are often more precariously positioned because they are uh, so few inside the communities that yep. they're living in, right? And the way things function out in a rural area is very different. A car is life or death. You gotta have a car, right? There are things that are very different. Um, so I think that's a fantastic question. We would like to be able to answer it more diligently in the future um, as we get more deep into the data. And if I could jump in just to expand it a bit, um, I think it's important that we, in Cleveland, uh, really focus on a regional approach. 
what we learned from the Bloomberg article is that it's a s these problems are really systemic in the black Midwest. So that's all cities in um, Michigan. Uh, we have cities in Detroit, Milwaukee, uh, Cleveland, Cincinnati. All of these cities that have the same ties, right? The second great migration, individuals coming up from the deep south, coming up here for economic growth, and then that growth being stagnated because of different policies. What we're seeing is that there, it is a full regional issue for the black Midwest. So not just Cleveland, but regionally. Um, and uh, we're really excited to be able to, again, uh, learn more from these regions and learn more about these individuals um, from the states and the, the counties that they're from. Good evening, ladies. First, I just want to say thank you. Um, as someone who got to participate in the survey and do an interview, um, I, I was born in 1980, so I'm, I kind of straddled the line between mm -hmm. millennial. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think in my Gen X nature, I didn't know that these things were microaggressions. Yep. It was just a part of what I was experiencing in, like in life, and it was okay. And d other people experience these things, so Honestly, our interview really helped me to see that um, my first 11 years of my career were really tragic and very sad. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> because it, it, it helped me to, to understand that, that those are things that you shouldn't accept yeah. and you have to stand up for yourself and like put your foot down. So thank you. Um, but my question is, ab is about something as simple as a name. So my name is Crystalline. Um, and Chi Chi actually sent out a tweet a little while ago, and it said, spell my name correctly. Yeah. My name is spelled wrong incessantly, yeah. all the time. I mean, people, literally, we live in the Midwest with people who have the most Slovenian last names, Girl. and everybody spells those correctly, but you can't spell K-H-R-Y-S correctly every single time. It's very confusing. So what I would love to ask the panel is can you talk more about those microaggressions and why something as simple as a name is so important to people so thank you Chris uh -huh. um, so my name is a prayer uh, my name is China Nyanwa, meaning God the giver of children or God who gives this child um, my mother and father prayed for me and named me because of that right when you do not say my name correctly, when you do not spell my name correctly, you are offending not just me, but my mom, my dad, and my ancestors. And I don't think you want to <laughs> offend Igbo people because we have a very long memory. Um, but more than that, um, it is disrespectful to not call people what they have been asked. And it is an intersectional issue. We see this happening with our trans folks, our trans brothers and sisters. When you are dead naming somebody, it is disrespectful. When you are not representing or allowing them to utilize the pronouns that they are most capable and cre creative, whatever they want to be called, it is disrespectful. And when you do not pronounce Chris's name correctly or my name correctly, you are saying, I do not see you, and I don't think that your name, your experiences are valuable. And it can be something as simple as, oh, can I just call you C? No, you can't. And in fact, you can never call me again. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's rude. Um, and we should be always striving to be less rude and more um, welcoming. And just to add to, oh, um, I wanted to add that microaggressions, I hate the word, honestly, because they're not micro in any way, yeah. shape, or form. They're just aggression, right? Thinly veiled aggression. And they come in millions of different flavors and formats, right? So part of what what we've been trying to do is label them, 
um, so that we can start tracking them and mitigating them and understanding them. And when you do start doing that, you start to see uh, that there are Venn diagrams, right, where um, maybe some issues that I've faced as a white woman overlap, obviously, with what happens for black women. But that may also overlap with LGBTQ experiences. And those microaggressions can change based on your intersection. So Chi Chi's experience of massage noir is very different than my experience of sexism, mm -hmm. right? And so I want people to understand that if you want to be anti-racist, you need to understand microaggressions and you need to get very literate in microaggressions directed at people who do not inhabit the same intersections as you. And I particularly want to call out white women, right? White women. Um, we understand what it is like to be marginalized. We understand and we, a lot of these issues, right? When I've talked to other white women, they've experienced them too. We talk about hypersexualization, white women experience that in, in doctor's offices too. I don't want to shift the focus, but what I want white women in the room to understand is it's time to align behind black women. When it is better for black women, it will be better for me too. We will be safer too. And so we start by solving the hardest problems first, and then we work out from there. Hi, friend. Hi, babe. Um, so I just wanted to say, um, my question is, I used to really wear the strong black woman as like a badge of honor, and I really resent it now. And I've had a lot of conversations with coworkers, um, that are black women, and I don't want to resent it, but I do. Um, I don't want to be a strong black woman anymore. I'm tired, and I just wanted to know what you guys' thoughts on that because I really used to love that, and I don't. I don't want. I don't want that anymore. Um, as somebody that used to also wear that banner, um, I don't want to be one either. I'm a soft black woman. I'm yes. a vulnerable black woman. Yes. I'm a black woman that should be financially taken care of. Yes. I'm a black woman that should be educated. Like, I am all of those multitudes, and to just put me down as strong is to ignore all of the other ways that I am, like Bethany had talked about, microaggressed against. Um, <laughs> I think that... Um, your feelings of resenting it are true and they're, they're real. And there was a tweet that I saw um, when, when Stacey Abrams really helped organize and pull off that historic win of two senators in Georgia, two blue senators in Georgia. Everybody was like, black women will save us. Yes, black women. And then there was a quote tweet that said, but who saves black women? Mm -hmm. Who is going to save black women when we're always the saviors? Put the burden down, sis. That's not your burden to, to hold at all anymore. Um, we need to save ourselves. We are constantly in community with each other, um, and we need to be able to have other people be able to fight that fight for us um, while centering our voices. Good evening, ladies. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing all of this. So I have a question. Um, Oftentimes, even when black women are finding their voice and they speak out, especially in it kind of seems in like civic spaces, in spaces where they're, these spaces where they're not supposed to be racist and the people don't think they are because they're doing direct service for black people, they oftentimes are, will gaslight and be very hostile work environments for the black women. I have personally learned to always CC, download emails and things of that nature. Um, however, <laughs> yeah, and email boards of people. But is there like a way for us to keep like a larger database 
for black women to be able to report. Because I've had a lot of people even call, whether they're new in their career or older in their career, and they're like, hey, I did do what they said. I replied in an email that this is how I felt as a black woman, and then I was gaslit or I was, there was some type of retaliation. Do you guys think that there's a way to create, like, a way to kind of put a tip line? Because these people are still getting big funding. Like, they're getting funded by all the big philanthropic organizations, but they're racist to all of their black staff. Yeah. And it's like their funders don't care. So, like, from you guys' perspective, like, what would you guys suggest black women do? I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to, I, I do want to put a quick plug. Um, there is a first step that you can do. Um, which is visit projectnoircle.com slash blackwomen. We have a black women resource guide there. That's a step one. Um, and also just like find us. Uh, but I don't want to step on the toes of either Stephanie or Bethany that uh, may have something else to say. We, we do do individual ag advocacy work too. So if you or anybody here has experienced it, uh, call us, find us on Twitter, uh, DM us. We talk people through systems. That's actually how we started. Chi Chi and I sat down over tacos and margaritas, yeah. and we talked about how bad our careers have been. And that's how we founded Enlightened Solutions, is because we felt like we were alone, and there was no advice that took into account our intersections. I consistently was told, you need to be more aggressive, and the feedback I got was, you're way too aggressive. Um, so you can kind of understand where we're in this catch-22. The nonprofit industry here in Cleveland is behind the corporate environment. They're worse. Um, <laughs> there is a, uh, a consistent need to pat themselves on the back. I've worked in the nonprofit industry for over a decade. I'm a licensed social worker. I'm a therapist. I'm a lawyer. Um, and the microaggressions that we hear from the nonprofit community are particularly jarring uh, because people should be literate, right? But so often, Chi Chi and I sit down with uh, nonprofit executives, and they can't tell us what a microaggression is. Never heard the term. They don't know what intersectionality is. They've never heard the term. We had someone who's responsible for marketing Cleveland and attracting talent. He said, I don't understand how this relates to economics at all. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So, yeah. so I want you to understand, <laughs> right? Fun meeting. I, I, fun. We're going to be really real here. The, the philanthropic sector in Cleveland is very far behind. So if I could really quickly follow, because we are co coming close to time, I want Stephanie to give a quick rundown of what the 21-day social justice oh, and racial sure. equity challenges. Sure. Um, this might be something that you guys could bring to your organizations. We're proud to do it. Um, this is our fourth year, which is really exciting, and we have done it for across the nation. Um, so the 21-day racial, actually, I'm sorry, it has changed its name this year. 21-day stand against racism challenge as uh -huh. we move to the national YWCA um, as a program is 21 days of curated content from myself and our team at the YWCA around four topic areas. So four weeks, you'll get um, about three to five pieces of an article, a video, um, a podcast to listen to, perhaps, about a specific subject topic, I mean subject. So um, we've done it with multiple companies across the last few years where they've been able to have conversations about that content, about what they're reading, about what they're hearing together as an organization. And it's been a really good tool for some of these organizations to begin to be better, to begin to have conversations that move outside of HR and the DE&I department that is just having trainings because it's forcing you and everyone in your team who participates to get, you get the email every day that says you need to be reading this. You should be listening to this. It's information oftentimes that people are saying like, wow, I did not know that. Even in uh, 
subjects of like sports last year. There was a lot of information that people were like, wow, I can't believe that. Um, so it's a great step to have to to change some of the thoughts and opinions and to give more information to organizations. It is only a step. And I want mm -hmm. people to remember that. There's, it's not the only work you should be doing all year. If so, then that is tragic. Um, as much as I appreciate my own job and, and our organization, it's not the only work that you should be doing in yeah. all year. But it is a step for some organizations to start having those tough conversations um, as a company outside of their social circles and outside in work. Mm. Stephanie Shealy, Chichi Incamera, Bethany Studenic. Wow. Project Noir. Yeah. Thank you all for joining us here today at the Happy Dog. This Friday, we'll be talking about uh, our Say Yes program. Sticker, tickets are still available. Again, that's this Friday. We'll have some representatives from Say Yes, including a really inspirational young woman who is the first uh, scholarship recipient of the Say Yes program. And I just want to thank you all for joining us here today for this amazing, raw, real, important conversation uh, here in Northeast Ohio and Cleveland. Uh, I'm Cynthia Connolly. Forum is now adjourned. Yeah.